Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who forge their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. I'm delighted in this episode of the Workplace Happiness podcast to be joined by Vicky Price. Uh, many of you will know Vicky Price because she came to prominence in 2013 uh, with the Greek debt crisis when she wrote and she commentated a lot on the crisis, uh, having come from uh, Greece herself and spending her early years there. But um, as well as being an acclaimed economist, Vicky is also a business consultant and a business author. And she's just recently written a book uh, called Capitalism Versus Women. Vicky, it's a real delight to have you on the podcast. I wonder if we can start, Johnny, just asking you about your early years uh, in Athens. Did you ever think that you would have the career that you've had? That's a really interesting question. What I did think as I was growing up uh, was that um, Greece was a bit too small for me, if you see what I mean. It was uh, constraining. And when I was uh, a kid, of course, it was still a very conservative environment. And um, we, sort of middle-class Greeks, would all go to schools that uh, taught us lots of languages. So I went to the German school. My, brothers, my brother went to the American College for Boys, my sister the American College for Girls. Uh, and we also learned French from a very young age. So it was very obvious that uh, you, you couldn't really survive and, and succeed unless you knew lots of languages, because, of course, hardly anyone speaks uh, Greek. And if you were thinking of what you might do in the future, it's very, very useful to, to do that. But, of course, by doing that and by encouraging kids to uh, think more widely, if you like, because obviously you, re- you read a lot of literature, you understand the movies and all that, it also expands your horizons, so you begin to think, do I really want to stay here or do I want to do something different? So I left Greece at the age of 17, came over to the UK, of course it was a rather difficult time because we had the colonels who came to power in 67, I left a few years later, it was pretty terrible, uh, but unfortunately my father being in the tourism business and lots of people boycotting Greece over that period, everything just went belly up. So I arrived in London with zero money. Uh, and had to start working full-time. So I was doing one year extra A-levels, maths and economics, in the morning and working every day, six days a week, between two and nine, as a room service telephonist at the Mayfair Hotel. It was absolutely brilliant because I've never eaten so well in my life. I had this chef who would turn up at particular times um, when it suited him because obviously he had quite a lot of demands for all the people who were ringing in. For room service, which I had to write down and give to all the waiters, who then asked the, the chef to produce. Anyway, this, this Italian chef dressed 
you know, impeccably sort of white gear and big hat, would turn up at a particular time of the day holding the latest dish, usually steak and chips and mushrooms and tomatoes. And, and I would just sit there still at my desk in the kitchen sort of taking down all these orders and he would just look at me and then throw this plate in front of me and then walk away. Throughout that entire period, so he's quite a young guy, he never said a word, never. And I never asked for anything to eat. And you just bring that. So if you were to feed yourself um, or think about getting a job um, to keep you going, if you have absolutely no money, get yourself a room service telephonist job by the kitchens. So you'll be very well fed. I don't think I've ever been so fat as I was then in my life. And that must have been quite a big thing to do. I mean, to be 17 year old years old, to come to London, to, as you say, finish your A-levels, to find a job. I mean, did you have anybody to support you? I mean, I, I can't imagine many people doing that today. I came with some friends, which was a good thing. So there were some other boys who came, and some of them went straight to university because my brother's friends were two years older. And others were, did A-levels as well, went to Oxford or whatever to do it for a year. So there was a little bit of a community. By the time I went to the LSE, uh, a year later, and I had some really good teachers in this, in the Southern College of Technology, I think it was called, still is, in Waterloo that I used to go to. Uh, really good teachers. Uh, by the time I went there, um, uh, I managed to get a scholarship from some Greek foundation to... to um, uh, pay for my fees plus giving me something extra and then I'm afraid the following year I got married uh, with somebody who was then had been the, the, the president of the students union at the LSE and then became British and suddenly someone was paying my tuition fees. I just have to say one little thing about economics because I've looked at why women don't do economics. Uh, for me the thing that was really attractive and you know, most girls the moment you say economics Apparently, think of men in suits in the city with sort of pound coins sort of falling uh, around their heads. Um, but actually, there are so many possibilities. You 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 have this inability to say if A then definitely B. So if A and B then possibly C. So the fact that depending on um, personal actions of people, depending on government policy. The outcomes, even in a market economy, could be very, very different uh, because they influence prices, expectations, and so on. And I thought that was very exciting for me because it suggested there's some real issues in relation to policy. It's not just doing econometrics and doing your equations. I was reasonably good at all that. Uh, but it really is in, in the assumptions you are putting in it and the expectations, the possible scenarios that there may be. So, in a way, and like maths, which I did, and you, you knew if you do A plus B, then you get that. Um, with economics, anything goes, and I found that really exciting. So, Vicky, uh, going back, uh, you're at LSE, and you graduate. Where, where does your path take you next? Well, that's... Uh, purely by chance, really, uh, because I finished my first degree, I already had, uh, I got married, and um, uh, I was looking for a summer job, because obviously I still didn't have very much cash, and I have to also add that during my uh, undergraduate years, I became a guide 
I was taking tourists around London uh, and outside London too, in German and French tourists using my languages. Uh, so obviously, again, I was looking for something to keep me occupied until I decided what to do in terms of a second degree. And uh, my um, uh, one of my connections found me uh, a possibility because they started working at the Royal Bank of Scotland Group to be assistant to the librarian because they needed to sort out their library, uh, a three-month job. And I thought, wow, I'd do that. Uh, and I thought this was fantastic. So there I went to an office in Bishopsgate. And uh, of course, at the time, they weren't employing any women economists. But anyway, I was an economist, really. So I um, worked there for a bit and met some of the people, including, of course, uh, the head, the chief economist, and director, who was a board director, uh, a New Zealander, who was their boss. And to my amazement, um, as my three months were finishing, he offered me a job. Um, he offered me a, a sort of permanent job, which was quite extraordinary. And I remember going to his office in my jeans and things. He says, well, we're thinking of employing you, but if, you, if we are going to employ you, you need to, you need to uh, you know, dress smartly, of course. And I said, well, it depends how much you pay me. If you pay me well enough, I'll be able to buy myself a new wardrobe. Anyway, he seemed to think that was a good answer. And so I was hired. Um, and uh, then did my master's part-time at the LSE a year later uh, and took my exams after I had just produced uh, a child, my first daughter, um, and just moved jobs. And it was very interesting because we're talking about uh, opportunities in life. Uh, there had been the Equal Opportunities Act, of course, 1970, I think it was, uh, but things took a little bit of time to filter through and at the bank where I worked, it was Williams and Glynn's Bank, it was part of the Royal Bank of Scotland Group, eventually it all became one. Um, they, uh, people could borrow 100% at something like half percent interest rate for a house. When I say people, I meant men. At the age of 21, all men working in the bank could have a 100% mortgage, some ridiculously low rates. And remember in those days we had already the first oil crisis when we had superinflation interest rates rocketing. Um, but you had to be a man. Women could only get it if you were proven to be a spinster, not about to have any kids or anything like that. And of course the act changed it all, so I had to wait for a bit, and because I was only 21 when I joined. and. They, they then changed it for everyone at the age of 23, men and women. So I got my first house. At the same time, you know, some very low interest rate, I have to say. That regime carried on for quite some time when I bought my second house. So I was very lucky, got into the property market very early on. Um, and I did my master's just as I moved, had a kid. Bought my first house, had a kid, uh, and did my master's as well. Uh, and in those days, of course, I think I put my time to do my master's as training, I think. And when I had my second child a few years later, I put it down as holiday or something like that. So it was, you know, it was quite, you know, you used to lose your job if you either got married or had a child. And, and I had, I remember very distinctly, I had this uh, assistant, because I rose to be manager of the economics office at the age of 25, which is quite surprising. But at the age of 23, when I was having my first one, I had this lady who was a statistician who used to put all these slides together and things, sticking them with stickers, you know, you had to sort of cut the 
the coloured thing and put them, and then he had these slides you could put on the wall. Uh, that was before PowerPoint, obviously, who um, would always inquire about my belly <laughs> and, and was quite, uh, you know, I was quite, quite unusual for someone like me or, or anyone there to have a child, first of all, because they didn't have any women before uh, of any sort, and women would lose their jobs if they had children, as I said earlier. Um, so if I had all changed by the time I had my first child. Um, and I said, well, what about you? Uh, have you got children? I said, no, no, we never, me and my trade union husband, who I knew, um, never really intend to have any children. So uh, I discovered a few years later, after I was having my second one still in the bank, that she already had a 14-year-old, but had kept it completely, completely secret because she knew she'd be sacked. Um, we've moved a long way because of government legislation. So it would not have happened uh, if government hadn't made that change uh, and you know lives were miserable at the time imagine and, and spending famous, all the time the, hiding it and, and famously you you just took six weeks off work for maternity leave well I did with each because there wasn't really very much extra provision at the time and but it worked out quite well because if you want to um, rise in an organization unfortunately or if you wanted to rise in an organization then you had to be present uh, I know it's to this day from my children who take time off or work, may have thought of working a bit part-time, uh, take longer time off and I see it from friends as well. Uh, if you're not there, projects come um, and go and you haven't been involved, you're not seen, you don't get trained while you're away, usually it's different in the civil service, even there there are issues and the reason why quite a lot of men don't take the maternal leave that they could take is because again if they upset themselves they seem to not be as willing to be involved in whatever project they might be and or they're just not there they miss out. I decided quite early on that you had to be there uh, if you wanted to succeed. I was actually the main breadwinner for quite some time and then a single a parent for a while. There was no way I could take time off and lose those chances so it was already you know somehow in my brain that you had to do that similarly with having children and being seen as a as a producing machine uh, if you like um, a survey done just last year in the UK showed that even though it's now illegal to ask that question HR directors or whoever interviews you um, still tend to ask a woman whether she intends to her kids and how she's going to look after them if she does, or if she has them, how she looks after them. And also it showed that almost 50% of the firms, uh, if you ask them for the reaction, consider, or the people working in, consider that having a second child is a burden. The same woman having a second is a burden to the organisation. So what I tended to do through my life, I have five kids, without having seen that survey, which is very recent, but it must have been even worse when I started my career, I, had, I tended to have my children in different places. So you move jobs and have a child somewhere else. Uh, but again, you can't take a very long time off. With child number three, I was working for an American oil company. And the most extraordinary thing is they said, if you come back within two months, we give you an extra two months pay. It was a no brainer. Of course I went back within two months. Uh, it's made a big difference to me financially. So you had to be there, had to be seen, 
not completely, because again, in that same American organization, I used to turn up around 9.30, um, and everybody was already at their desks, um, working from about 7.30, very American way to do. So my Canadian boss called me and I said, we really like what you're doing, but it's been noticed that you come in late. Um, so that was before I had China there. And he said, can you not come back early? I said, but no way can I do this. I take my kids to school in the morning. You have kids? I didn't realize. I said, yeah, as you know, I stay until very late at night. I have arrangements in the evening because I was responsible. I was a corporate economist for Europe, Middle East and Africa. Um, so there were slightly different time zones. Uh, and I would stay until quite late and finish off because I was responsible for everything that was going on on the economic front around Europe, in particular and elsewhere, uh, which they knew. But it was the morning being seen that mattered. It was the presentation, whatever it is, just being there, uh, which was more important than actually doing the work. Anyway, they changed the tune completely. So I didn't change my schedule. Uh, and then I had child number three after I got married again. My boss came to the wedding and they gave me that great uh, possibility to come back early. So yes, that's how you do. I have to say that by the time I had child number five, I took three days off, just three, um, because there was some work coming up. and. I had to be seen as some treasury and government meeting. Um, and so I had to get up after three days and be there so I could start the job. I then took it easy afterwards, but that sort of thing needs to happen. Unfortunately, you've got to be flexible as well uh, and, and give way a little bit if you're looking at after your career. It doesn't mean that you should sacrifice, but uh, there has to be flexibility, I think, on both sides. And people listening to this will just be struck by uh, your work ethic and just how much you've done. I mean, that, um, you know, having your first job, being uh, the manager, uh, studying for an MBA, having a, a child. Um, do you look back and think, gosh, that was a lot, I was tired then? Or does it all just seem like a natural part of you working incredibly hard? Well, it was an MSc in, in, in monetary economics at the time, and I, I, I remember the time sort of very well. Uh, but yes, it all came. They do say that the greatest stress you have is move house uh, or perhaps having a child. And if you have both of those at the same time, then it's crazy. Uh, adding to that, having to do your master's exams um, is, is extra crazy. So, so you have to take some measures. In my case, uh, my mother came and took the baby to Greece. Uh, and I remember spending the entire time until I got the phone call that had arrived under the duvet cover. So terribly worried. Uh, and once she was there, I knew she was in good hands, so I could relax. So I had very supportive family. So my kids all along used to go to Greece a lot and spend the summer holidays and so on. So I had an escape route. So you have to find an escape route. But the most important thing, particularly for young mothers or young fathers or anyone who's looking to have a career and have it all in inverted commas, if you like, is don't try and be perfect. Don't feel guilty. You're not going to be, you know, the, you know, like the Instagram stars uh, that people see a lot on social media these days. I think social media is terrible for that in that respect. Don't try and be the perfect mother. Uh, you make mistakes, but accept them. And even at work, don't try and be perfect there too. And the way to really survive in leadership positions, particularly when you're young and growing and suddenly having, you know, 
all these people who report to you, who perhaps are older than you, is be humble and have make sure that people who work for you are brighter than you are, are better than you are. Don't worry about whether they might knife you at some point, you can always move to another environment. Just make sure you rely on those and you have a, a spirit wherever you work, which is one that is supportive. Um, and you give them credit. And then they'll give you credit. I've worked in organisations where I, I would do anything for the people who work for me, against all sorts of other bits within that organisation. And they would give their lives for you as well because of it. And they knew you would do it. That's the way to survive. Rely on others. Delegate. Um, make sure they share in, in whatever credits you may get. And, and then they'll be there to support you when you need it. Uh, in personally and um, professionally. And a number of the people I work with have become best friends. In fact, the majority of them. And that is the way to survive. Uh, because as a woman in particular, you need that extra support. So you need that extra, you know, someone to come in if you have to rush and, and collect a child because something's happened. And, uh, and there are other times when you laugh about this because you still expect to do everything. And I remember getting this call from um, my um, daughter's school because she was quite athletic and one of, and, and she was captain of the netball team or something and they were playing against some other school. And I was rung up, which wasn't very usually the case, saying, oh, you know, can you pick little whatever? Um, she was already a teenager, actually. Um, at 5.30 today, because um, we're playing against the school and she's the captain. And, and I said, but I'm in Bangladesh, which is where I was uh, for work. When I was at KPMG, we were trying to privatise something. Uh, and they sort of went up and like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, we'd never bother you again. I said, why couldn't they bring my husband, for example? Anyway, so I got my pair to go and pick her up. Uh, but it is still the case, they expect you now. Anyone in my position could have felt terribly guilty. I just laughed and laughed and laughed. Um, and you have to, to laugh. You have to not take yourself very seriously and be prepared to you know, let go at times. And I have to also say, because my children have been quite spaced out, so there's a 17 years difference between the eldest and the youngest. So my elder ones have even gone to parent evenings for the younger ones. And that was brilliant. So again, just don't worry too much would be my general advice. If you have a supportive mechanism around you and you do things right at work uh, and there are people you can ask to do things, don't try and keep it all yourself. That's the worst mistake you can make as, as a leader generally, but as a mother in particular. Okay. Um, Vicky, you've had a, a glittering career. You've had so many roles in business, in corporate, uh, advising the government on trade and a whole host of other things. But what we're going to do now is the um, Engaging Works Workplace Happiness Survey. Read out and just say what you're going to score yourself. Our question is, do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? And my score would be eight, perhaps. So, uh, eight's a high score, and um, we've talked already about gender pay inequality. So, has there been any point in your career, Vicky, where you might have been lower than an eight? Well, I have to admit that I've, I've done reasonably well. 
Uh, I'm saying eight now uh, because I do a lot less of the stuff that, and I know that because I've made a conscious decision, a lot less of the stuff that I did before which was very highly remunerated. So it's the appropriately that is the issue for what I do at present. It doesn't mean that I couldn't get uh, remunerated a lot more if I did something slightly different. So, uh, and in each case uh, where I work, you know, I became a partner at KPMG quite early on, um, so, uh, and I know I was well paid. Obviously in the public sector, I was paid an awful lot less and I made a conscious decision to go and do that. I was still one of the highest paid people. I was at the top, whatever it is, 75 highest paid uh, people in the civil service um, because I got a special recognition for coming out from the private sector. Um, and then I went back to the private sector where I was earning quite a lot for some time. I made a conscious decision for all sorts of reasons. I've had a few ups and downs in my career, some real downs. I had to go back to something which wasn't necessarily paying me very much, but which gave me quite a lot of satisfaction because I was able to do lots of extra things at the same time, such as write books, teach, and so on. I do a lot of teaching, I can tell you, that is not properly remunerated. If you were to compare it, that's in universities, if you were to compare it with anything else I might do, but it was a conscious choice. The next question is if I'm happy with my working hours. Um, Absolutely, but of course that's again my decision. So if we can put uh, sort of a nine there, and the reason why I have it high is because I could easily say no, but I don't. I tend to say yes, and and, and perhaps if you were to sort of uh, ask people how do they get on, um, it is generally by saying yes to to almost everything. And of course that gives you then the terrible problem of how do you balance things out? How do you get, go from A to B? And I was trying to explain to one of my sons, who is obviously right now terribly concerned about the environment, um, why I need a plane to take me from A to B and another plane, uh, because I have all these talks to give. Uh, this is International Women's uh, Day period, um, where I have so many of those uh, talks to give. Uh, and you wouldn't be able to do it if you took the train to go to Edinburgh and back, for example. Um, great difficulty explaining, but it is my choice. Uh, but it does lead to a completely crazy life. But at present, I quite enjoy it. And um, it strikes me that you're an optimist from all that you've said. I'm not saying yes. That, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm not, not I, am, um, I have a very open mind about things. Uh, it doesn't make me necessarily an optimist about the economy, um, but it makes me an optimist about if you have the right set of, uh, of mind, if you like, and you've done your networking right, your connections right, uh, and you don't restrict yourself in terms of your horizon, then saying yes increases the opportunities that you have. and. Uh, I think that's good. There, I mean, there have been the odd times when I've said no, but it's pretty rare. This is about whether I feel recognised when I do something well. Um, yes, reasonably. Um, I've put a, I put a seven. Uh, I've, I do quite a lot of public speaking, I do quite a lot of broadcasts, and, and that generally goes well. But of course, you get lots of trolls as well, 
because you are a Remainer, let's say, and then the other Brexiteers who didn't like it. Or you do quite a lot, and as a woman, the interesting thing is, although it gets recognised, so I've done some great stuff and I got fantastic uh, feedback. Um, what you find, particularly in economics and elsewhere, is that you know men take the credit quite often. Uh, if you look at uh, academic careers for women, um, certainly in economics, only 16% of women are economics professors, uh, even though they joined they joined because of economics profession reasonable numbers. So there's quite a lot of that. Um, but I think it's 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 this your your qualities aren't always recognised, but in many ways, one shouldn't really care. But I can't lie and say that one is always recognised uh, when one does something well, because as a woman, you often are not. Or if you're recognised, there will be so much that's said against you. And you have to watch that as a woman. The next question is whether you have enough information to do your job well. The answer is yes. Um, uh, reasonable, I'll put, an, I'll put a seven, because of course uh, it's economics and you can't always trust the data. Uh, and there are some countries which um, don't actually give you the data that you want. Uh, and then there's quite a lot that's going on in government right now where some of that evidence is not really used appropriately. So quite a lot of um, information that's out there may just not come out into the public domain because it's been suppressed or whatever, or ministries fighting with each other, or certainly that was the case since the referendum. So you don't get all that information, you can't actually give the right advice. And I certainly found moving from the commercial world uh, in John Lewis and Waitrose to the government in trade that there was far less information, less good, clear information in government than there was in the commercial world. Would you say that's normal? Uh, Depends on the type of information, of course, that we're talking about. Certainly, the government is quite slow in understanding what's happening in the commercial world. I mean, that's the truth. And uh, understanding how various sectors are doing uh, on a uh, sort of timely basis, uh, because you're looking at policies which may have a sort of more long-term impact, or you're working on bills that might affect it. So, there isn't actually a unit that just there should be, I think, that just you know, sends up all the information about everything that's happening. So you have to depend on sort of data collection on on people from the outside doing it uh, for you. But then there still needs to be someone who uses it to inform ministers. And, and quite a lot of decisions are made without necessarily having that detailed knowledge in various departments, which is very dangerous. The other question is whether I feel information is openly shared with you at work. Um, Yes, uh, I mean, we all see everything that's produced and, you know, part of the email system and everything else. And, and we also know, we even know things we don't necessarily want to know, such as the Northern Line is not doing very well, I'm going to be a bit late or my train's been cancelled, can somebody please make sure they get in early and switch the, the alarm off when, and, and leave the keys wherever. So you get far too much in some ways. But anyway, yes, the answer is yes. So I think I was... So when we do this survey uh, with people around the world, we often find that women say that they don't feel information is as openly shared at work as men do. Would you say that's been true of your 
business life? Uh, of the business life generally, there is a, certainly an issue about information asymmetries. One of the things that I've written in my book, Women versus Capitalism, is that there is a lot of information that just doesn't filter through because the, the, we tend to have men getting together and networking a lot more and sharing information which women just don't get. And that affects you in your commercial environment. I have some examples of that from some women who are now very high in their positions, um, but who felt throughout their career that they weren't getting the right information to be able to do well. Now, in where I am right now, um, we just appointed a very young chief executive of the organization uh, who is doing incredibly well. So we are in a way the opposite. Uh, it's not a very big organization, you know, so it's not, it doesn't have tens of thousands of people. So in, in this firm, uh, there's a lot more um, uh, transparency, if you like, in terms of what is there. It doesn't mean that everyone knows what everyone else is earning. I think small firms need to do a little bit more of that. Um, but there's certainly no holding back any information. Okay. So I will put eight. Okay. You have the jobs you can do a job well? Well, you can always get more. You can always get more people doing some of the background work and so on, so I'd put six. Have you ever felt that you've had all the resource you needed? No, either? of course not. Except, of course, when I worked for the government, where uh, I was, in addition to being Director General of Economics at BIS, or DTI as was, and then BUR, then BIS, um, there were 1,500 economists across government and I've never felt so happy because there were so many experts that you could go to in, for various areas. Uh, what had happened instead in banking, for example, is that they cut back their economic um, units very, very considerably. Uh, and it was a real joy to go to um, work in the government. However, I had to restructure what we were doing because a lot of work was being done in areas that I knew wouldn't have much impact on policy. So we stopped doing things that weren't directly relevant, um, and that really helped. Happiness um, about whether I'm empowered to make decisions, uh, the answer is yes, uh, at present I am, although of course I'm just part of a, of a board, um, and uh, we all have to contribute to them. So I'll say seven, I suppose, only because it's not just me who makes the decisions. The next one, which is whether I feel trusted to make decisions, uh, well, you have to agree on that with others, um, then um, the answer, since we seem to make a lot of progress in our decision-making, would be, yeah, uh, eight. And have you ever felt, Vicky, have you ever been in a role where you didn't feel that people were trusting you to make decisions? Oh, yes. Um, there are various times. It's not necessarily the role. It's various times when it's not the trust. It's just that people don't really like being told that uh, the type of decisions that they are trying to move towards make no makes no sense. Um, so it's more a question of people not really wanting to listen to what you're doing. Uh, but also, and what people need to watch all the time, is that it's not really the trust. It is that if your bit is doing well, if your Perception is 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 liked a lot, and therefore you get involved in loads of decision making. Or at least what your output is is being listened to a lot. Others get jealous of it and try and take your resources away, or or take your business away. Really. So 
that's where you have to watch it, and that's where being a woman actually makes you much more vulnerable because they think you're easy to handle. And then you have to decide, do I really stand up to it in a very strong way or do I use different means? And that's where your networking comes into play. And that's where the trust of your organisation comes into play. So I've been in organisations where it is the team underneath that was able, through participating in wider email thing, were able to find what was being planned against us, if you like, which is where a lot of the data and information and evidence was coming from us, uh, because it wasn't liked by others, because it meant they couldn't go ahead and, let's say, subsidise the car sector without sort of, you know, getting a bit of evidence to support it, because our evidence would say, don't do this, it's not additional, what have you. Um, they were able to, to uh, gather our resources together to ensure that whatever takeover intention there might have been or, or killing some of the information we were passing could be uh, frustrated. So, so that's how you need to do it, possibly. Um, and as a woman, if you become too strident uh, around a boardroom, uh, you, know, you tend generally not to be listened to so well. In the public sector, it's different. It's easier to say what you think in a way, but you've got to learn how to say it. And I think I need to suggest one thing about just what I discovered the, the move from the private sector to the public sector is that in the private sector, in boardrooms, you, or at the top of an organisation, you have fights, and they're perfectly acceptable to have fights. You go around a room and someone says something really stupid. In the private sector, they would tell you that you're talking rubbish. In the public sector, they would say, that's a good point, but, um, but can I just add, if you looked at it from a different angle and so on and so forth, and you could actually, you know, make progress that way. So you told the person they were talking rubbish in a slightly different way without losing face. They could accept your change, your suggestion. And I think if that was brought into more private sector boardrooms, uh, then women would also do considerably better. So that they heard the word absolutely. So I'll put a I'll put an eight or nine or eight there. Um, in this organisation, absolutely, yeah. Okay, I I get the feeling, Vicky, that your views will always have been heard at work. I don't think you're afraid of um, saying uh, what you think. Well, it's interesting you say that because quite a lot uh, of our involvement, of course, as as you know, people who are experts or analysts or whatever who give support because I wasn't just uh, you know head of economics at like KPMG, but I was also at various stages head of strategy and as I said earlier head of international privatization. So you actually do proper work on the ground, but a lot of it is also got to do with looking at economics and so um, so if if a firm thinks or, or or sets some targets for itself which are uh, not possible to to come be realised and you're telling them that actually they won't be realised, they don't always want to hear it. So no, there are loads of times when people don't want to listen to your evidence and the question is what you do to survive. I mean sometimes you say, okay fine, let's just wait and see what actually happens in reality and of course you know you're right or you're usually right. I mean there are times when perhaps we have been wrong but but you know, the, the analysis based on data gives you a certain answer, which quite a lot of people who do strategy without really thinking about the assumptions that you make 
um, can get wrong. And that doesn't make you very popular, so you have to just watch it uh, if you want to get your point through. Okay. Do you feel the organisation cares for your well-being? Uh, yes, but I am, I am, yes, yes, I would put seven there, only because I don't necessarily tell them much about my well-being. So. But do you take care of your well-being? Because so much of what you do now is generated by you, isn't it? So yes. you, you saying yes and going to do lots yeah. of things. But I'm also on the board of the company and uh, I'm on the chief advisor, so I have to watch what I say. Uh, I think they have assumed that I will be well forever, which of course you could watch. I think it's true that I rarely feel anxious at work, um, but it all depends what we mean. In the company, I don't feel anxious, but obviously there could be times when I'm asked to comment on something and I'm not completely ready for it, so I do occasionally. Uh, but I, I, I have to say that I do rarely feel anxious. Mainly, I feel anxious about getting from A to B. That's the most important thing. So I would put a, I would put a six, a seven. And can you remember any point in your career in any jobs where you did feel anxious going into work? Uh, when you feel at times that perhaps you're not appreciated or there's something really difficult coming up or perhaps there's a change at the top and you're worried about how they do, of course you'd feel anxious. Uh, and it would be silly not to because you've got to be prepared. So anxiousness, is, there's nothing really wrong with it. It gets your adrenaline going. Uh, and you've got to really think quite hard on how to deal with a particular situation and I think it's good news. And the question is whether I'm happy with my working environment. Well, I work partly in the office and partly at home. If you looked at my study, you'd think it's just rubbish uh, because it's quite big but so messy. So I would say uh, I like working in the study uh, but I also would like it to be slightly tidier. So. Um, but otherwise I work outside the house a lot, so I would say on balance, yeah, six. Do I feel happy at work? Uh, yes. Okay. I'll say yes. So, so I think I could perhaps be doing slightly different things and easier things and possibly earn a lot more if I were doing those things. If I hadn't had my ups and downs or my particular down, I probably would be. So I would say yes. I put a, I put a seven. Do you feel that you do something worthwhile? Yes. Uh, I, I think I do on the economics front, I think I did on the Brexit front, and I think I'm doing it on the women's front. So yes, I've put, put an eight. I may of course be deluding myself, but there we go. Do and you do feel I feel proud to work for my position? Yes, I think it's a great, great team. Yes, I'll put eight. How likely am I to recommend my friends and family to work at the organisation? Uh, I already, I mean, I'm trying to think whether I already have. Um, or not, but uh, the problem is that I have to be economists, and uh, I'm afraid the one big failure of mine is that none of my five children wanted to be an economist. So, although I'd like to recommend them, they're not going to get in. So, uh, but I can recommend others. So, uh, it's quite tough, tough because you have to be really good. So, I put a seven. And do I feel I'm well treated and with respect? Yes, absolutely. So, I put an eight. There are nearly at the end now. And do I enjoy my job? Yes. I wouldn't have wanted to be or to have studied anything different than what I did, so I would put a 10. Do I feel I have a good relationship with my line manager? Well, my line manager is, my, is the owner, really, of the organisation. Uh, 
and we get on very well. It's a very good relationship. But I don't agree with some of his economic views, so we disagree on a number of areas. And that doesn't seem to matter in the slightest. So I would say, yes, very good, so I put a nine because of that disagreement. So he goes off and says things that I don't approve without checking. And nothing, nothing to do with me, but, you know, Brexit views or things like that. Um, so then I, at least we appear to be balanced. Um, do you feel you're being developed? Or you're constantly learning. Uh, the thing to say is that you never stop. In fact, I probably learned more in the last couple of years than I ever did, including about myself. So I'm being developed not necessarily by the organisation, although a lot of what they produce, we produce is very useful. So I put, absolutely, I'm being developed. Nate. So the, the, we just ask you for the three things uh, that you would change to improve your workplace happiness. Uh, being slightly better organised. Okay. Second is perhaps saying no occasionally. And your third change to make you happier at work? Well, this was the better organised, which is actually, you know, um, extra support. Okay, so that's the survey completed. Now what we do very quickly... So, we now get the results. So, your score, Vicky Price, is 77%. Mm -hmm. uh, and here is you. Your industry is 61%. So, mm -hmm. you are far happier. Okay, the thing is, of course, we put financial, whereas, of course, financial is one of the worst. Whereas, we've gone, I saw it later there was a business, so it doesn't matter. Business consulting. Yes. They are happier. Yes. So if you'd have gone business yes. consulting, I, I think they're high sixties. Yes. So you're still happier than the normal. Yes. But that's because I have much more independence. Yeah. The reason is that it's not just the sector. And yeah. then globally today, sixty-five uh, percent. Mm. So people from all industries. Mm -hmm. um, so you're sixteen percent above the uh, scores. If I go down. There were six areas that we asked you questions about. We asked you questions about reward and recognition, information sharing, empowerment, well-being, instilling pride and job satisfaction. And the highest that you scored was in job satisfaction. And the lowest, although still a good score, was in well-being. Mm -hmm. And um, if you click on these boxes, if you're doing it, it tells you which score. So the school that sort of dragged you down a bit was, are you happy with the working environment? Which is not the, which is not the office, which is not uh, CVR itself, but it's, the, yeah. it's my overall thing. Although I love it, I'm very happy, it's just that it's... <laughs> because I've been writing on this box, and I have, so I need someone to just... Sort you. I've got two last questions for you, Vicky. Um, the first is, what piece of music, when you hear it, makes you feel happy? I can't answer it. I, I, you see, I quite like pop music, and I quite like quite a lot of them. Um, really, anything that makes you want to dance. Abba. No, that's <laughs> no. Okay, no. And um, last question: If you could nominate one person to take workplace happiness survey, who would it be, and why? <laughs> well, obviously, everyone would like to know what makes Boris Johnson tick. All right, I think that everybody's in the same everyone boat with that one. Everyone would have said exactly the same. <laughs> on, the, on, on that bombshell, Vicky uh, Price, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you very much for sharing with us uh, all that you've done in your amazing working life. 
uh, and also for talking to us about your new book, Women Versus Capitalism. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time. Oh,